Being a Catholic, I believe in order, tenderness, and piety. May the bridges I burn light the way. Okay. Listening to the Jeff Seagrill in the Finest Radio Hour. Thank you for listening to the Jeff Seagrill in the Finest Radio Hour. A production of the This is an emergency broadcast from Detective Wolfman, the High Howler and Night Prowler. Friends, I was cruising the two-lane blacktop in my neck of the woods this evening, and the spirit of the season must be getting to me because I was besieged and beset by thoughts of the grave and visions of my own demise. And pure of heart as I am, times like that I can't help but wonder that when my time comes, if old Scratch won't be there waiting for me, looking to collect on some bad debt. Now I know I'm peculiar. But I ain't so special as to think I'm alone in my misgivings. The hammer falls for one and all, so when the Grim Reaper grabs that scythe and swings for the fences, and I need to muster up some last-minute courage to make the devil blink, I'm gonna remember Jody Reynolds in his endless sleep. Dig it. The night was black, rain falling down. Look for my baby, she's nowhere around. Traced her footsteps down to the shore Phrase she's gone forevermore I looked at the sea and it seemed the same I took it baby from you away I heard a voice crying in the deep Come join me baby in my endless sleep She... Now, in colder homes, our morning bones moan for fires burning. On the bog's edge cops and thin soil slopes, the weaker oaks are turning. The slithering hiss of frozen fog, freezing mist, disappearing by noon. Sun be staying, the end of hay. The world returns to moon. Wet diamond field, the queen's joy healed. Cold king waking. Everything is dying. You are reminded that fire is not only for bacon. Soon, the morning is dark. Soon, the evening is dark truck forever running the river alight with tide troubled ice its foaming voice is thrumming but take heart friend life does not end it's only yours that can life is forever an unfortunate 
frozen river whose tedious tides end and begin. was supposed to end when I was 19. I lived accordingly. Collapse became my religion. I spent New Year's Eve of 1999 with the flu, delirious and feverish in a corner while my friends got drunk. I watched the ball drop sideways on television with my head resting on the carpet. Nothing happened. I didn't lose faith, but I moved on to more esoteric forms of doom. Overpopulation, peak oil, world war. A lack of regard for life in general. The idea that everything and everyone was some sort of parasite speeding along the demise of the planet trickled into my own life. I spent the first year of the new millennium and the last year before I went to jail with very little regard for my own safety. A summer of increasingly foolish and pointless petty theft and parking lot brawls ended at Mesquanica Beach in mid-September night. It was stormy. The swells were taller than myself and my friends. Warm to the touch, even though the air already had an autumn chill. Earlier in the day, a friend's girlfriend had knotted my hair into shitty white boy dreadlocks and was insistent that I need to submerge them in salt water. So a carload of us ended up in Rhode Island on a whim, dancing in the undertow. I remember stripping down to my boxers but being too shy to remove my shirt. A bright yellow t-shirt with the face of a cartoon elf on it that read Happy Camper in giant bright red letters. It was an herbal antidepressant we sold in the last job I quit. A health food store in a strip mall where I briefly worked with Wendy O. Williams of the Plasmatics before she killed herself. She walked out into the woods about 10 minutes north of where I live today and ended it with a shotgun after being fired from the health food store. Ostensibly for theft, although we all thought the owner just didn't like what he found out about her past. I quit, partially in protest and partially because I was lazy and bad at being told what to do. We parked at a beach bar and snuck out behind the patio onto the beach after dark. It was a full moon or close to it. The lights from the bar lit the entire beach in a faint, violet glow. It was too choppy to swim normally, so instead we waited for a swell to come and we jumped into it face first with our limbs splayed, the ocean slapping us down into the wet sand like little insects pestering a man, playing with us. It was sprawling and dark, an infinite nothingness behind the undertow which could feel dragging at us a little bit as we got back on our feet. My family were always river people, living on them and working in them, but we weren't much for swimming. I could barely float myself. Some of us had drowned driving logs over the years, but didn't keep us in the water. The ocean was different. It hardly mattered if you could swim in the undertow at night. It was bigger than you and stronger than you and could swallow you forever to win. A dark, endless nothingness pulling you in. I kept letting it pull me in a little further each time. Eventually I was standing up to my armpits, the cheap garish t-shirts clung to me and chilled in the September air when I would emerge from the water. I felt my first hint of panic when the ocean reached my chin, a bit of brine spilling over into my mouth as the current dragged me back, 
and a thrill with the idea of playing Tug of War with a boy here. My friends were shouting to me as I went out further and further, but I couldn't hear them over the surf and the noise from the bar first. It suddenly occurred to me that I needed to choose not to die, and I began flopping my way back towards the beach, trying to run in the sand but feeling it dissolve beneath my bare feet. When I got back, my friend's girlfriend was crying and began hitting me. She asked me if I was trying to get killed. I don't remember what I said, if anything. We rode back to Connecticut in silence, soaking wet and shivering. Suicide. Yes. Uh, what happens to a soul that commits suicide? Well, you know, it's called Satan's eighth sacrament, suicide. Uh, there are seven satanic sacraments, apparently, but the they, so suicide is the is the, uh, the eighth one. The what happens is briefly this: that uh, by my own hand. I cut myself off from leading a life according to God's will, who is the master of life and of death. And by doing that, I violate a fundamental commandment of his, which is do not kill yourself. It's a fundamental law in our, my nature. Um, and I thereby enter the gray area where I can never see the light again, I can never be with God, I can never have happiness, uh, and I suffer the torment of being separated from the one thing that would have made me happy, would have made me beatify me forever, God and His beauty and His truth and His heaven. What about what about those people that suffer physical maladies that are terminal and horrible and simply? I know. I know. simply want out. And I, I, I've thought about this and talked about it on the radio as a talk host over many years. And my position was always sort of, whose life is it anyway? I'll be in control of my own life. Nobody yeah. will tell me what to do. My wife told me, doctor, yeah. don't do it. Even if you're suffering, you are meant to go through this. And if you don't go through it, something terrible is going to happen. So... And, yeah. and, and those words have rung in my ears uh, for years. I, I know, and I, I, they, they ring in my ears now that you said them, and I won't forget them. They've been said to me on other occasions by other people for other reasons, for the same reasons. The, it, I don't know, I really don't know, Art, in the whole of human history that I have read and talked about and inquired into, I don't know of any explanation justifying human suffering 
accept the sufferings of uh, Jesus Christ on his cross. If I can identify with his sufferings, uh, in spite of my cancer, in spite of my arthritis, in spite of my AIDS, if I have these things, um, if I can identify with his sufferings, I can merit I can yes. merit a greater place in heaven. I can merit a greater closeness to God. And I know in my soul what I want is God's beauty and truth. So then to uh, avoid it by taking your own life is to exclude yourself from his company. That's right. That's right. Now, I do not exclude at all, Art. I must tell you this much. I do not exclude that, for instance, if I proceed to take cyanide or something, you know, some uh, some suicidal act, I do not exclude that before I die, God can touch my heart and make me repent of it, even though I can't, uh, I can't undo what I've done. In other words, uh, redemption always possible, even yes. in the last second. But yes, I don't exclude God's mercy, but you're running a terrible risk. <laughs> sad story. Growing up in Lincoln, Nebraska, my best friend from first grade through fifth grade was a kid named Chris. He had a little brother named Michael. His parents were divorced. His dad, Dave, was a dry drunk who lived in squalor and managed an old country buffet. Dave's face was all scarred because he was once thrown through the windshield in a car accident. Dave had a house and two Britney Spaniel dogs. He was an avid hunter and took Chris and Michael pheasant hunting. Chris knew how to shoot a gun. Chris's mom, Bev, was an attractive woman who lived in an apartment not far from Dave's house. At some point, she got a boyfriend who was a total asshole named Ken. Ken was a truck driver, unpleasant as hell and he moved into the apartment at some point. I felt for Chris. 
His dad was a loser and his mom had a complete prick of a boyfriend. Chris had this problem with wetting the bed and he wore a diaper to sleep in. His brother said it was because he slept so deeply that he didn't wake up to use the bathroom. I imagine he developed the habit when his dad was still drinking and maybe his dad and his mom fought so he didn't want to get up. I don't know how that works. I had this friend who Chris didn't like and who didn't like Chris, this terrible kid named Trevor. And I got into my only ever fist fight with Trevor to defend Chris. This was like in fourth grade. In sixth grade, which was still elementary school for us in Lincoln, Chris started being mean to me and we stopped being friends. He fell under the influence of some cooler kids, I guess. But once we entered seventh grade, middle school, Chris was outcast by those kids and didn't have any friends. And one day he sat down at my lunch table and we all got up and moved. And in eighth grade, I could tell Chris had changed. He started hanging out with kids that I considered bad, and he started wearing all black, and I heard rumors that he was smoking weed. We were on the 8th grade basketball team together, and he asked me if I was going to be nice to him again, and I said I would. He told me that getting up and moving lunch tables was mean, and I agreed. It seemed like maybe we'd be friends again, but then, very shortly after that, I was at home one night, and I got a call from another kid, Tyler, who'd been friends with Chris and me when we were in first and second grade. And he told me that Chris was dead. He'd killed himself. He'd gone home sick from school and shot himself with a shotgun in the basement of his dad's house. His little brother found him when he got home. The truth was that I wasn't that sad at the time or surprised. I asked some of his new friends who might have known a little better if they knew anything about a suicide note, but they didn't. The school conducted an investigation and were trying to figure out if Chris was doing drugs and, and if any of his friends were also using. I went to the funeral, which was packed. I saw Chris's dad, and my dad, who also attended, remarked that he looked like shit. I couldn't really tell. He kind of always looked like shit. At the funeral, there were pictures of Chris and his friends from over the years. I was surprised that I wasn't in any of them. At the time, I wasn't that curious as to why Chris might have done something like that, but now it seems obvious. His parents had shit going on, and there probably wasn't anywhere he felt safe or comfortable, and he probably felt like it would always be that way. I don't feel like I caused him to kill himself or anything, but I didn't help either. It's a sad story. But there is another lot. A crew of hard, weather-beaten men. Lumberjacks from the woods of Canada. The Canadian Forestry Corps. Come to fight an important battle where skill and science, axe and saw, are the weapons that count. For in wartime, Lumber is needed as never before. From the forests and streams of Canada, these men have come to do their job. From the whole width of the Dominion. There are men from the Maritimes, from the banks of the Minamichi, the Restigouche, the St. John. Men from the old lumbering rivers of the east, from the Gatineau, the Ottawa, 
The short, yeah. Z, round the corner back in 1970. Board of Commissioner since 2006. Of the night. Whispering pines, whispering pines. Tell me, is it so? With any possibility. But you decide for yourself. For 300 years, we never went west of the river. The Connecticut River begins in a lake that is in both Coos County and Quebec, and we lived and worked between the two until the war lured us west. We ended up leaving home, leaving the church. Sons died before fathers, men took their own lives. It sounds dramatic, but I believe we were first. My great-grandfather was born in Connecticut when his father was called down to break a strike in the thread mills. He went home still a baby. An American citizen. His children were born in Quebec, but were American citizens by extension. It meant little until the war broke out and consumed everything. After a century of starving subsistence in the woods, we found ourselves flush with cash from logging to feed American industry. My great-grandfather bought a truck and began using his citizenship to cross the border with my grandfather and his younger brother Adolf, going places other French Canadians couldn't go as easily. In 1950, business was still good from the post-war boom, but the French settlements in New Hampshire and Maine made it easier to cross, saturating the labor market. My great-grandfather got word of wild lands in northern New York that hadn't been logged yet. They crossed the Connecticut River for the first time and passed into Vermont, then New York, setting up camp in the first town over the bridge, Crown Point. My grandfather was 18, his brother 17. They'd been felling trees and river driving since they were just boys. A river or a state line seems like an arbitrary designation, but the meaning imagined or not becomes real. There was danger in leaving home. French wasn't spoken. There was no Sunday mass near the camp. There were English girls who went to Protestant churches. And one caught my grandfather's eye when he went into town. One day, he approached her with Adolf, whose English was better than his. He asked her to go country-western dancing. She was only 16 herself and thought Adolf was asking her and was surprised to see my grandfather show up at the dance. When he got back to camp, Adolf wasn't there. Everyone assumed he had been with my grandfather. He was found drowned and broken by the side of the river. He'd gone log driving alone, unable to swim, clinging to a chain for dear life as he prodded the logs down the river. He slipped in the logs, pummeled him down under the surface until he drowned. My grandfather and great-grandfather drove home to New Hampshire with Adolf's body. As soon as he was buried, my grandfather went to Korea. His father never worked a job again. When the Korean War was over, he went back to Crown Point, married my grandmother, and brought her home. They spent the next 20 years drifting south. My great-grandmother died first. Then my grandfather's youngest sibling married and left home, leaving my great-grandfather alone and dependent on money his children sent home. He hung himself in a little shack in the east side of Berlin, New Hampshire. Shortly after going home to clean out the house where he committed suicide, my grandfather's youngest child, my Uncle John, died in birth, strangled by his own umbilical cord. We all stopped going to church for about ten years, but my sister Megan died in her sleep as an infant. My grandmother went back to church, but my parents didn't for another ten years when my Uncle Don killed himself. His funeral was up north in Berlin, the same town they'd left across the river into New York, and where my great-grandfather hung himself. Three generations after crossing the river, we only went to Mass when a parent buried a child or someone committed suicide. 
I came home from my uncle's funeral, spent a summer wishing the world would end. But then I danced in the undertow when it didn't. Now, in colder homes, our morning bones moan for fires burning. On the bog's edge copes and thin soil slopes, the weaker rokes are turning. The slithering hiss of frozen fog, freezing mist, disappearing by noon, will soon be saying, the end of haying, the world returns to moon. Wet diamond field, the queen's joy healed, cold king waking, everything is dying, you are reminded that fire is not only for baking. Soon the morning is dark, soon the evening is dark, the truck forever running, the river alight with tide troubled ice, its dooming voice is thrumming. But take heart, friend, life does not end, it's only yours that can. Life is forever an unfrozen river whose tedious tides end and begin. Self-repeating the same I get to this studio in Belleville, New Jersey, um, and I'm supposed to stay here for two weeks, and there's no other bands here recording except for me. And so the building is like part of a long line of townhouses. That's the best way I could describe it. Like like European style, all the houses are connected, or all the, all the buildings are connected, and the next, the, uh, the neighbor, building to the studio is a car shop and so I think that's why they called it the machine shop but a lot of legendary bands in my like to me at the time had recorded there and I thought that that was awesome and I was really looking forward to this um, experience you know I'm a new I'm, I'm a DIY artist I've, I've never been to a professional studio before um, I've never had the money to do that kind of thing so this is really an exciting thing so you, you walk inside and there's a living room sort of area to the left. There's couches and a TV and studio rooms in the back. And then there's a stairway off to the right. And you go up and there's a big studio room, like a live room, um, a bunch of other studios, a bunk bedroom where bands would stay, like sleep. 
and then in the very back of like there's like a long hallway and you go all the way back and to the right is the kitchen and in this entire studio there is no windows um, all of the windows are covered up with black sheeting or with that material that they use to soundproof rooms except for this back kitchen window uh, and if you walked outside the window you could stand on the roof outside of this window and a lot of bands would, would, when they would record here would go out there and you know smoke and chill and do whatever so I'm the only person here recording me and Randy this guy that I'm recording with um, are only recording at nighttime because we're both used to a night schedule so we start at like 9 p.m. and we usually go till 3 a.m. kind of like my job schedule and so it doesn't set a really good precedent when when your whole entire album is about doubting your faith and questioning if God is ex exists um, and then being so alone that you have to kind of face yourself and I had been living, you know, on these off and on tours where I, I, I could kind of pretend like that didn't have to happen. Um, I, could, I could wait till the next thing that was going to happen and, and postpone any sort of productive thought that has anything to do with self-analytical thinking. Like, I don't know, it's like living a, a, a tape loop of your life, just feeling the same feeling over and over. So anyways... I get to the studio and I'm isolated. I don't have anywhere to go. There's nothing around the, t the, the studio that, um, there's nothing in walking distance. It's all, it's all ugly buildings and, and abandoned structures and it's crazy. So the first couple of nights are fine. We're, we're making really good music. Like we're, we're really vibing, we're feeling really good. Um, but, first couple of nights staying in that studio were pretty creepy. I didn't stay in the bunk rooms because they stank and it just didn't feel right sleeping in there and I don't know why but I avoided the, that room. So I slept on different couches every night um, in different rooms. I tried downstairs, I tried upstairs, I would try one room upstairs, one room downstairs just to like get something different because every room that I would sleep in something creepy would happen or I would have like a nightmare. Um, I remember having many nightmares. I don't remember what they were about, which is crazy, but I remember having nightmares. And um, I would wake up in the middle of the night, like nothing would wake me up, but I would just wake up and feel like something was watching me or that there was a presence. And it's so crazy because that's what my record is about. It's called There Is A Presence Here is one song. And <laughs> I was experiencing these demonic, um, influences all around me this entire time um, so about a weekend it was getting pretty intense and I was starting to kind of go insane because I started to when I would try and go to bed at night I would just stew I guess and I would start thinking or hearing thoughts um, that I knew didn't come from me and they would say things like I hate myself I want to die I want to, I want to die I want to kill myself I hate myself, like, but I would say that thousands of times before I would fall asleep, and uh, I've never done that, I don't, I don't do that, I don't think thoughts like, I want to die, that's, that's never been a thing that I've done, um, I've never contemplated dying, or, or ending my own life, it's just never been an option, 
but all of a sudden I'm thinking these thoughts out of nowhere. So um, it gets it's like a it's like a slow progress. Like it gets progressively worse and worse, and I get progressively more and more like on edge. Um, and one night I remember sleeping in downstairs um, and on the couch, and I heard from the uh, staircase kind of room area. I heard scratching on the floor, and it would scratch, and then it would stop, and then it would scratch, and then it would stop. And I was so terrified I couldn't even move uh, to even go look and see what it was. I just stayed there with my eyes open and waited until I was no longer afraid so I could fall asleep. Um, another time I heard footsteps upstairs and there was nobody in the studio. And um, so yeah, it was torturous, and it was like this every night something crazy happening every night at the studio um, and I would say the climax point of this uh, story would be that uh, towards the end I can't even remember what time if it was the end of the, the session like the end of the two weeks or in the middle but it was it was the like breaking point for me and I was in the bathroom after taking a shower and I was looking in the mirror I think and I just looked at myself and I felt overwhelming, revile, and disgust, um, which is another thing that doesn't really happen to me. And I felt the feeling was so hateful, spiteful, that I don't, I, the, the physical and emotional response that I had to it, I cannot describe, but in that moment, I never wanted to kill myself more than, than I ever had in my life. And I, it like, I remember it brought me down to the floor and I was crying in a fetal position, naked on the floor, thinking that I wanted to kill myself. Um, and I remember crying out to God in that time and crying out to Jesus and uh, getting a little bit of, seeing a little bit of light in that tunnel. Cause I was still living a pretty, you know, I was in the right headspace to be right with God, but he, he sort of called me out of it, of that moment, and um, it was pretty crazy. Um, it took me a while after that to finally get my life together, but um, one of the craziest things about this story is that my friend Randy, who was recording my music, told me when I told him what was going on finally, um, and he, he would let me keep the dog that he had. Um, he'd bring with him his dog to record with us, and he'd let me sleep with the dog at night after that. But when I told him what had happened, um, he, he didn't seem surprised. And he told me that a lot of bands would come through and stay the night and experience similar things, or at least like hauntings. Um, and actually one band had a vocalist who had struggled with mental health but when he came to the studio, they had to record for like a month. And I think at the end of the month, he had gotten so crazy that he went outside the window of the kitchen and stood up on that roof uh, in the blazing hot sun all day long and would not come back inside uh, no matter what anybody said. And he got like second degree burns from that. And a couple of months after they recorded that record, that guy killed himself. So, I definitely believe that that studio carries a lot of 
emotional and spiritual baggage that I'm sure thousands of broken people have carried into that studio, into that building, and just left it there. Um, and I think that those spirits definitely latch on to weak people, and I was weak, and it latched on to me, and I still, I still hear those weird thoughts sometimes, um, and I know that they're not mine. I always know when they're not mine, and I didn't have them before I was in that studio, so I find that pretty crazy. Police knocked on my door early in February of 2000. My father sent them away, hippie to the last, then woke me up with a warning. I played dumb and began shoving anything incriminating into a duffel bag under my bed. Cash, handcuffs, two-way radios that we've stolen. The phone rang. It was still landlines back then. My best friend's girlfriend was sobbing and hysterical. She told them everything. She was sorry. I got dressed in a panic, grabbed the duffel bag, and went out the back door into the winter cold. It was that kind of New England cold that burns your sinuses, bitter and dry. A little bit short of a foot of snow was on the ground, the surface forming a thin layer of ice that crunched with each step and scraped my ankles as I took each stride. I fixed my eyes on the swamp behind my parents' house and began moving towards it with the duffel bag as fast as I could. It felt like one of those nightmares where you would try to run but your legs didn't work. Maybe 30 seconds went by but it felt like an eternity and the police returned. They'd gotten the call. They knew everything. They tore down the dirt driveway, squealed to a stop at the snow and jumped out. Two detectives leveled service pistols at me. I could faintly hear them ordering me to freeze over the howling winter wind. I stood there for a moment, my head swiveling between police and the swamp. The water called me one last time, and I longed briefly for the piece of a bullet in the back of the head, a cold sleep face down in the frozen wetland, the easy way out. And then I thought about my parents and my sister, my grandfather burying his father, his father burying his son. With a tremendous effort, I turned to face the police. The duffel bag dropped from my hand and crunched into the snow. I lifted my hands over my head. The wind howled and it was over. I was alive. But this is a new world. I gotta be me, I gotta be free. That's the way the devil talks. He's on our side. Before we sin, Christ seems to be the accuser. Before we sin, the devil is our defender. He's on our side. 
the side of our sex, the side of our pride, the side of our greed, he takes our part. After we sing, then the roles are reversed. Then Christ becomes the defender and the devil the accuser. And the devil will say, all right, now you've had your dope. Now you're hooked. Don't come to me, I can't help you. You might just as well give up. Sure, you've lost your virginity. Now what difference does it make? You might just as well go on. Sure, you've stolen. You haven't been caught, but you will be. Or you're about to be caught. So the devil fills us with despair as he filled the heart of Judas with despair. Judas could have gone to the Savior. The Savior would have forgiven him. But Judas took a rope and walked the frozen ground before the frosty trees. And every knot and every tree seemed to him like an eye. And every branch of every tree seemed to be an accusing finger. Traitor. There was nothing for him to do in his despair but suicide. And that is one of the reasons why suicide is on the increase in our civilization. Despair. The devil got us. In one of the novels of Dostoevsky, Raskolnikov, who was a very evil man, said to a girl whom he loved, he said, Sonia, you know what's going to happen to you. You're either going to jump off a bridge or you're going mad or you will cut your throat. But that was not the way it happened. The first time my daughter got out of the psych ward, we went to Savin Rock and ate soft shell crab sandwiches and walked on the beach. We didn't say much of anything. I'd been fighting with her mother and she hadn't allowed me to see her for a few months before that day. She'd ended up with a 72 hour hold after threatening to kill herself during an argument. I showed up at her release quietly seething and said we were going to get lunch. Nobody argued. I followed her wordlessly out into a rock jetty. She held her arms out to her sides like she was walking a tight rope and hopped from rock to rock. The sun was so bright I was half blind. Long Island Sound was choppy and lapped at her feet. At the end of the jetty, she took her shoes off and stood on the furthest tip of the rocks, dangling one foot into the water. Her arms teetered by her side. A big wave hit the jetty hard and the undertow came back hard enough to throw her balance off. I grabbed her by her wrist, maybe a little too rough, and yanked her back towards me. 
She winced for an instant and smiled and rested her head on my shoulder. She took out her phone and took a picture. She walked back to the beach with her shoes in her hand and we dug a moat in the sand before I brought her home. It wasn't the last time I picked her up from the hospital, but she lived. She chose to live. She broke the curse. Now in colder homes are morning bones, moan for fires burning. On the bog's edge cops and thin soil slopes, the weaker oaks are turning. The slithering hiss of frozen fog, freezing mist, disappearing by noon. We'll soon be staying the end of hay. The world returns to moon. Wet diamond field, the queen's joy heel, cold king waking. Everything is dying, you are reminded. The fire is not only for baking. Soon the morning is dark. Soon the evening is dark. The truck forever running. The river alight with tired troubled ice. Its booming voice is thrumming. But take heart, friend. Life does not end. It's only yours that can. Life is forever an unfrozen river. Those tedious tides end and begin. Of the Swamp Yankee Radio Network. We now conclude all further updates.